0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 4. The book of Judges, chapter 4. And I would like to finish (coughs) preaching and teaching you about righteous indignation. Although tonight's will be different than this morning's, and I do pray that though it be different, you'll not forget what we thought about together this morning. And I hope the conviction that it left in your hearts To go from this place today, more intent than ever, to be zealous and indignant and angry and hateful about sin. That you'll have greater hatred for television, more repudiation of movies, a greater resentment for all this world has to offer, and their efforts to tempt us and our children. (coughs) In Judges chapter 4, I want to briefly give you the example of the greatest housewife recorded in the Bible. Judges chapter 4. I gave the sons of Levi this morning, and I gave you Phinehas, and I hope that you'll not let your children forget about either of them. But tonight we want to look at a housewife, we want to look at her briefly, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But the woman's name is Jael. There was war in Israel. The children of Israel had done evil, and so the Lord raised up a king named Jabin, the king of Canaan. He reigned in Hazor, and he had a captain of the host named Sisera. Now times were so hard in Israel at this time that there wasn't a man to lead the nation. So a woman stepped forward to lead the nation, and we've got a woman in our congregation named after that woman. That's Deborah. She led the nation along with a weak man named Barak, who followed a woman because he didn't want to get up there and do it himself. So she led the nation, and he followed her and did what she told him to. But the Lord wrought a great victory. And to honor women that day, the nation of Israel slew every single man that Jabin, king of Canaan, raised. But there was one man left, and it was Sisera, the captain of the host, and he's running away on foot because the chariots had been taken. And we want to take up in verse 17 of Judges chapter 4. Sisera was the captain of the host. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael, sitting in her tent mourning about this battle that was causing her so much fear, prayed that nothing would come near her tent. I simply do that to get your attention as to what the Bible really says. Look what it says. Do you love this woman? And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my Lord, turn in to me, fear not. Remember, he's running for his life. And when he had turned in unto her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk, and gave him drink, and covered him. Again he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here? That thou shalt say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took an hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground. For he was fast asleep. And weary, so he died. Praise the Lord. There are some great women in the earth. And I want you to notice about Jael that she just didn't wait in the tent. When she saw Sisera coming, she went out to get him. Now, Deborah wasn't content with just having that recorded there in Judges chapter 4, she led the nation in a song about Jael. And that's Judges chapter 5. And we'll just look at the verses that apply to jail. You young men, do you want to know how to get a woman? A woman! She'll love the story of jail. Because she'll hate sin, and she'll think in a zealous manner about putting it away. She won't be some timid little thing that can't hate. You want a real woman? Let her read Judges 4 and 5 and see if she gets excited. We've got a few in here. They're twisted in a godly way. And it's wonderful. Amen. I love to have them here. Judges chapter 5. Look at verse 24. This is the middle of a song. Somebody put this to music. Judges chapter 5 verse 24. Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. That's why I said housewife, right there. Women in the tent. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter, she gave him cream, my friends, in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail, and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera... (laughs) She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. The mother of Sisera looked out at a window and cried through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariots? Her wise ladies answered her, Yea, she returned answer to herself. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey? To every man a damsel or two. To Sisera a prey of divers colors. A prey of divers colors of needlework. Of divers colors of needlework on both sides. meat for the necks of them that take the spoil. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord but let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. That's the end of the song. And the Lord had rest 40 years. Sisera's mother, wondering when the chariot's going to get back with some beautiful material for her to wear as the spoils, but poor Sisera was bowed down at the feet of a housewife in an uncomfortable position with a tent stake through his head, nailed there. That is a woman... That had the same spirit that Phinehas had. And she wrought a great victory over Sisera, and Deborah did also on that day, so you women should not feel left out, and you men that are wise, you young men that are wise, will look for a woman that hates sin and is bold and courageous against sin. Because in your marriage there are going to be times where you may be tempted, you may be weak, and you want a woman that will stand her ground And defy you in those matters and keep you righteous. Not that we'll go along. Let me, let's see how realistic I can be. The husband comes home on a Friday night and says, honey, I want you to get dressed up. I'm taking you out to eat tonight. Oh, she's so, she's so excited. She's so thankful. She's so blessed. So she goes out to eat with her husband. And they're eating there in a restaurant. And when they get finished, he says, and we're going somewhere else after this. He's been looking at his watch during dinner. And so he drives her over to Hollywood 20. And, oh, what a great thing. She gets to sit and hold hands with her husband and watch a movie after having dinner together. What a great evening. Where are the jails that will not go in? I cannot go in there. Where are the jails? Right. That's harder than driving a tent stake through Sisera's head. Where are the jails? We all have our opportunities to be finnehas in jail. That's just one example. We could think of thousands. Men, you want a woman that will stand her ground and help you get back right with God instead of going down the path of going into Hollywood 20 and letting Hollywood steal you away from God and get and leave you with a carnal brand of Christianity that is no Christianity at all. Right. I warn you wisely, soberly, and carefully to consider what I've just said. You want a woman that won't go with you. Amen. And as soon as you've seen her courage again, I hope that you'll be like Barak, and you'll be shaken that a woman's just been more righteous than you, but then you'll want to replace her as the leader in the home again and say thank, and you'll thank her whether you can do it in that instant or not. We'll leave that up to the character of the husbands. But hopefully later you'll be able to thank her for what she's done and retake your position as the leader of that home and restore righteousness because you've been slipping. Of course, passive entertainment is great entertainment but it's not godly entertainment. All right. The next time you want to go and do that, invite me along. That way you can have this little critic that will help you understand what you're missing in the movie. If you think you can go and do that and be a Christian, take me along. I'll have some Bible verses for you and I'll spot what you're missing. But you know what? I won't have to say a word because you're going to watch that thing through my eyes and you're going to listen to it through my ears. And that is horrible. Brethren, we got to be holy if we want to please the Lord. We want to be like Jesus Christ. We want to be like Phinehas. We can talk all day. I can bring swords. I can bring javelins. I can bring halberds. And I can lay them up here. And we can all think about jail. We can think about Phinehas. But that isn't where the battle's at. The battle is in our homes and in our lives. Are we willing to cut off heads there? Are we willing to run javelins through there? That's the battle. Now let's look at this battle a little more closely as to how a Christian is to have righteous indignation. What is your attitude toward the things of this life that the world bombards us with? What is your attitude toward sodomy? What's your attitude toward drunkenness? Abortion? Pornography, movies, television, music, worldliness, carnality, amusement parks, all of it. What is your attitude? Is it a godly attitude? Is it wrong to go to an amusement park? Well, you need to answer that with the conscience of Phinehas. Sometimes it isn't, and sometimes it is. Once in a while it isn't, too often it is. It's folly. Show it to me in the Bible. Lay it on me. Open my eyes and let me see wondrous things from America's obsession with entertainment and pleasure. Everything needs to be analyzed from a standpoint of holiness. What will it do? Will it make us carnally minded and pull us and steal our souls away from the Lord, from a close walk with Him, from fellowship with Him? Or is it going to promote that? Is it something God has commanded us to do? What is your attitude? Brethren, this is how we apply Phinehas. I want all of us to go out of here tonight purposing to be a Phinehas. Therefore, everything must be analyzed with zeal for the Lord of hosts. Jealousy for him. Sports. Is it wrong to watch a football game on television? Not necessarily. But often. You waste three hours of time. There's ne- there hasn't been one play that doesn't take three hours. You waste three hours of time. You are faced with a 180-minute barrage of carnality and physical worldliness. There isn't one spiritual thought uttered by anyone, nor one spiritual symbol that you can see with your eyes. It's all carnal. And so for three hours, you are bombarded with carnality. Do I love that carnality? Yes. Could I watch a second game after the first one? Yes. If the third game was good, could I watch it? If there was enough popcorn? Yes. You say, you're sick. My flesh I am. And you know what the Bible, it says exactly that. I am corrupt and sick in my flesh. But you watching all it does is waste your time And pull you away from the Lord. It never ever takes you closer to the Lord. It is always pulling you away because it is totally carnal. You are bombarding yourself with a strong stimulus of a visual image and the audio and the excitement and all the praise and all the cheering of physical accomplishments with no regard to a day of judgment, no regard to the existence of God, no regard to thanksgiving for him for the ability to even walk, no regard for anything of his preservation and his blessing on this country to have such an opportunity. Nothing. Just crazy, insane people worshiping at their altar. Screaming. They never get that excited when they go to church. I am picking on a football game simply for the sake of making you analyze it with the zeal of a Phinehas. I'll tell you what, you can, you can watch what goes on in this church and watch what went on, and you can say that it just happens, or you can say that there must have been something really terrible there, or you can listen to me. And it comes by letting the world creep in, by giving a place to the devil And by letting worldliness suck your soul away from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how it happens. The devil doesn't come up to you and say, I'm the devil. Would you like to worship me? Don't you hate God too? Let's go find some big sin we can jump into. That isn't how it happens. It's, oh, there's a great game on this afternoon. you got to see it. And three hours later, you realize, man, now I'm tired. I don't have any time to read. I'll read my Bible tomorrow. And all your thoughts were that whole time are cheerleaders' legs, football players get all the praise. Who in the world would want to be a goody, goody Christian? There's no praise at all for that. I need to go back down to the gym and hit the weights a little bit more so that I can take more pride in my body. And so we get entirely geared physically instead of spiritually from a football game. Now, let me ask the question again. Is it a sin to watch a football game? I'd like to see how many minutes Jesus Christ would waste watching a football game if he were here. And I love them. I love watching football. College football on Saturday afternoons was a great pleasure. Haven't watched a bit of it, don't need it. Scores are plenty. I don't see cheerleaders' legs when I see the scores pop up on one line on my internet. No cheerleaders' legs, no rah rah for the big heroes, no guys being interviewed in the locker room where they're getting all the adulation of all the interview all, all the reporters and a hundred thousand people screaming for them. You know, you can't you can't avoid having that affect you. There isn't a young man strong enough that can allow himself to face that for hour after hour, week after week, like an indoctrination class and not have it affect him so that he begins to think more carnally. It's impossible. I've never met one. Never met one. The safest way, and here is where Phinehas comes in. Why did I preach about Phinehas? Why did I want to bring a sword and a javelin, a halberd to church? Why? Because here's where Phinehas comes in. How do you want to deal with sin? I think I can be a Christian and watch football. Then you be that kind of a Christian. I want to talk to the ones that really love the Lord. You need to be a Phinehas and pull out your sword. You need to be a son of Levi and pull out your sword and go <laughs> chop off some heads and cut off something dear to you. If your right hand offends you, pluck it, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. That's what Jesus said. That's what I'm. That's the zeal of Phinehas. That's what I meant by today. Everywhere we look, this world is bombarding us. Some, not so obvious as others. I picked on one that's not so obvious. They're, everything else on TV, for the most part, is much more blatantly sinful. I picked on football because it's less obvious, but the effect is it turns us into carnal Christians and you're going down. <coughs> you will have a fruitless life. If you don't think you have a fruitless life and you can get away doing it, come to me and I will help you understand what a fruitful life is. Right. You cannot have the two. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't be a friend of the world. You cannot be serving your flesh and serving the Lord. They are enemies against each other. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And that's why you can't do the things that you should. That's where Phinehas comes in. We need some angry preachers today that will preach against things like that and preach about the final judgment, and there aren't very many. Right. I feel like I'm all alone. And I'm not saying that for any pity. I'm saying that for your prayers. Because there's a, there's a devil that knows there's a day of judgment coming. Do you know how well he knows every time he ran into Jesus, all he could think about was, it's, oh no, was I mistaken in my calendar? Art thou come to torment us before the time? Horror. They live in horror about the coming day of judgment, but no one else even seems to notice. They're out there wasting their money and their time, screaming at the top of their lungs, painting their face half of it blue and half of it orange, in cold weather. But they're not thinking about the fact that they're going to face the Most High God. And just two days later, they can't even remember who played. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. See, Phinehas was exceptional. The rest of the congregation, if you'd have asked them, do you fear the God of Israel? Oh, yes, they were standing there. Let's Let's go back to Exodus 32. No, we're in Numbers 25. The congregation of the Lord is standing there. All the heads of Israel are hanging there, dangling from ropes. And if you'd have gone up and interviewed them, they were all mourning. And if you'd have said, do you, do you fear the God of Israel? Oh, yes. Yes. Look how terrible he is. Look what he's done. Look at this plague. There's 24,000 dead. Yes, I fear him. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, I'm feeling sorry for myself. And that's one brand of religion. There was one man there, and there's there are always going to be the exceptions. And don't you all want to be the exceptions? You know, yes. When, uh, when today, when today's society, you know, they don't want any exceptions. They want everybody to be, to get the same award. So when your 10 year old goes and plays soccer or t ball or baseball, at the end of the year, they give them all a trophy to make them all feel good because they wouldn't dare make any exceptions. But in the Bible, it's all exceptions. There was one. Phinehas. He rose up from the congregation because they all stayed there. He went and did something. Do you want to be exceptional men? Well, what I'm talking about is in our lives being different, being exceptional, not being crazy for craziness sake, but being zealous for the Lord's sake. Since when did we have to see a movie? It's only been the last 50 years that anyone even heard the five letter word. For 6,000 years, no one even heard the word, let alone understood the concept why do we need it? A has would cut it out. There are plenty of things you can do that are better, that would please the Lord, and wouldn't let your soul be stolen away. I fear for your, soul, your souls. And I know that if you pl- give place to the devil, when you walk in there, you are giving place to the devil. I don't care if you show up here every single Sunday after that, for the next 50 years, it doesn't mean anything. Are you fruitful? Does God know that you're living holy lives? Are you like Jail? Are you like Phinehas? Or are you living a bland, sleepy, dozy, distracted, fruitless kind of Christianity? We need preachers that will get up like Elijah and blast away at it. And we need preachers like Nehemiah that will contend with Israel and smite them and pull their hair and make them swear that they're going to follow the Lord. And there aren't any. Brethren, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, let's look at what problems we get into when we start thinking about righteous indignation. One of the problems is that we shouldn't ever get mad. Where did we... Where, who came up with that? You know he was effeminate, and he was probably a faggot. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. Satan himself, because he's the father of all lies. Jesus said it in Matthew 5.22, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. King James, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Matthew 5.22, all false versions, not one, not two, not five, not fifteen, all false versions take out those three words without a cause right. because they want to condemn righteous anger. They want to condemn righteous indignation when the whole Bible's full of it. Right. Who would want to sow that lie? A devil that never wants us to get upset about sin, therefore there's no preachers that get upset about sin. If there's no preachers doing it, parents don't do it. If parents don't do it, teachers don't do it. If teachers don't do it, kids, you might as well do whatever you want. The Bible says, this is what Jesus said, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. If you've got a cause with your brother, get angry. How in the world do you fit that verse with Exodus chapter 32 when Moses told the sons of Levi, Go in and slay everyone his brother. Go slay everyone his brother, but you can't be angry with your brother? You can't be angry with your brother when there's not a cause, a righteous cause. And I don't mean he opened his car door and dinged your car. That is not a righteous cause. That is a little personal offense that you should be able to overlook. I'm talking about a brother who goes and sins wickedly. You should be angry with him and for his sin and go pluck him out of the fire. And I'm going to get to that. But I want to show you that this is where it comes from. It comes from changing the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the indignation of God against sin. You want to look in Genesis? You want to look right off the bat? It's Adam and Eve and them condemned and their entire progeny to an eternity in hell for one little sin. You want to go to the end of the book? It's the entire universe except those put in the book of life condemned to an eternity in hell. And the whole book in between is God's indignation against sin. Because he wants to manifest his power and his wrath and his glory. And I'm preaching to you the true God. And there's a being that doesn't want that preached. And I hope that you're listening to me. It's the indignation of God. And they have come along and he has sown a lie that it's wrong to get upset. So no one gets upset. Now there's a whole pulpit manner. It's like the bedside manner for doctors. You know, I should have this thing on backwards. You know, let's do something here to help you out. Understand what we're talking about. You know, maybe if I wore this backwards, all of a sudden you'd think that I was more polished. You know, I could get some robe on and look like some idiot up here. The whole religious world. They put robes on, they want to be polished, they want to be refined, they want to be cultured, they want to be politically correct, but no one wants to preach against sin. No one wants to warn of a coming day of judgment. No one wants to warn about death, dying, and if there's a holy God that hates sin. And they sell the lie in the word of God. That's why we hold the King James Bible. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 only condemns you getting angry when you don't have a cause against your brother. And if it is some little personal offense, you do not have a cause. You should love your brother, and you should overlook that little transgression and love them anyway. Transgression against you, so what? Transgression against God, that's something else, and we ought to go after to save that person with anger. I don't have time to chase down all the references to prove to you that God is an indignant being against sin. He kills infants. You know how many times he took out entire nations and wiped them off the face of the earth? He said, I don't want the name of Amalek ever mentioned on this earth again. Kill every man, woman, child, suckling ox, ass, every single thing. I don't want to hear their name ever again. Because once they messed with my people Israel when they were tired. And Saul thought he could save a few of them alive, and God took the kingdom away from him. That's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Right. I don't have time for that. Brethren, here it is. Righteous indignation in the year 2000. The church and the nation are two separate things. In Israel, the church and the nation were one thing. Israel was the church. Israel was the nation. The laws of the church were the laws of the nation. The laws of the nation were the laws of the church. If someone went off to seek another God, you could go kill them and you were obeying the laws of the church and the laws of the nation. We have no laws like that. There are those that still think we do. They're still operating under the Old Testament, and every now and then you'll read about them blowing up an abortion clinic. Those are not the followers of Jesus Christ. We are separate from the nations of this world, including the one that we live in. We are Americans by default, not by choice. We are Christians and part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and they have two separate laws. And all of the young people need to understand that. We're not called to go out and put a javelin through anyone. The javelin that we're going to use in our lives, Andrew, is to turn off the television. And that's just as hard. I think it's harder. You know, you can actually get excited about going and running a javelin through someone, But there isn't anything exciting about going and turning the TV off. Do you all understand that? It's harder. But that's what we're called to now. The laws of the nation and the laws of the church are different. Jesus Christ has told us how we're to conduct ourselves. And we did it two weeks ago. And you had the zeal of Phinehas that night. I was greatly fearful that we would have a divided congregation. All of you know that. You You could tell. And I bless the Lord that there were some sons of Levi here, all of you. It was wonderful. That's what we're called to do. Do you know what the Bible told? I read it to you that night, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Those that are within were to judge. Those that are without, God judges. Therefore, put out from among yourselves that wicked person. That's what we were supposed to do, and we did it. That's how we execute judgment in the New Testament. We don't go use a sword. We don't go use a club. We don't stone, and we don't use a javelin but we execute judgment that way. Then look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our whole society is corrupt, brethren. There is no righteous indignation left. The only people that get mad and angry, you know, all hate crimes have been outlawed except hating, Bible-believing, Christ-loving, God-fearing Christians. Do you know that? To hate anything else is wrong and, it's, and a crime. But you hate us, it's justified and good because they hate us. Because Satan hates us. And they hated Jesus. And Jesus said, if they've hated me, guess what? They're going to hate, hate you, disciples. Our whole society is corrupt. I used to be a libertarian in certain ways because I would be a libertarian economically. In many respects. But I'm not a libertarian anymore at all. A libertarian speaks of things as victimless crimes. Listen, brethren, there's a victim in all victimless crimes. It's called a crime for a reason, because it's violating someone's law. And that law is the God of heaven. And while they go around saying that no one on earth has been victimized, they have victimized the God of glory. And therefore, whoever did that, if we had laws that were godly, would be put to death. Or if they were thieves, they would be made to restore fourfold. And if they couldn't write a check for fourfold, then you just make them a slave. There wouldn't be prisons. And that's the Word of God. But that's all been corrupted because there's no righteous indignation. Should we really get upset because there's prostitutes? Why don't we just legalize prostitution? I mean, the prostitute's willing because she's making money, The John's willing because he's paying the money and getting what he wants. That's a victimless crime. But God said that adulterers and whoremongers should be judged. Do you see the difference? They call that a victimless crime. Why don't we be like the nations of Europe and just legalize it, govern it, restrict it, put it in certain areas, make sure they get a health inspection every year, and allow it to run its free course. No one gets hurt. God gets hurt because God said it's a sin. Don't ever accept any philosophy like that. Amen. We live in a warped society. Brethren, I want to show you how to pick up your javelin. We did it two weeks ago on Sunday evening. Step one. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, the apostles exhorting the church of the Thessalonians, warn them that are unruly. Where's your javelin? If you see someone that's unruly in our assembly, warn them. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. But of course, I'm emphasizing, warn the unruly. This is how, in the New Testament, we practice the sons of Levi. Look at Jude chapter 1. I don't think you'll get confused in any other chapter. Jude verses 22 and 23. Verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's work. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some, have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. There are some that simply out of weakness, simply out of a lack of care and attention, will fall into some minor sin or fault, and it's your job to go save them with compassion. Galatians chapter 6 refers to these. When a man be overtaken in a fault... Now that is not a man that has obstinately set his heart against God. That's a man overtaken in a fault. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. That ver- Galatians chapter six verse one matches up with Jude one twenty two. And of some have compassion, making a difference. There are weak. We just read it. Support the weak, comfort the feeble minded. But then there are others, the unruly ones. It said, warn the unruly, and here it says, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. We need to be more vigilant and diligent in looking at each other's lives and yanking each other out of sin when we see someone slipping or when we see someone stubbornly continuing on a course away from God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, brethren, I don't want to be long tonight, here is how we execute it in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians three fourteen and 15, here's how we treat excluded brethren, until they're recovered and taken back in, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, that's what we did two weeks ago, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. The purpose is shame. That's what the Bible says. If you want to be a Phinehas, then you're going to love and appreciate and want to obey 2 Thessalonians 3.14. 15 puts a limit on it by saying, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The admonishing and reproving and exhortation is not to destroy, but to save. But that's how we're to treat. That is if you're zealous like a Phinehas. If you're not, then you're going to be comforting too early and undoing the Lord's order of judgment. It's been preached before, and it's going to be preached again real soon. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. How do we practice righteous indignation in a New Testament church when the laws of the church and the laws of the nation are different? We don't blow up abortion clinics. We don't go assassinate politicians that don't fear God. Yes, it would be exciting to the flesh, but it's not what we do. They're in God's hands. Believe me, we have the politicians that God wants us to have, and considering the course this nation has taken, we still have some pretty good ones. You say, are you talking about, I don't care who you want to talk about, they're still better than what we deserve. Aren't we still living rather peaceful lives with all sorts of liberties and freedom and prosperity and peace? And don't you still get most of your paycheck? You want to go read the book of Judges? They didn't get any of their paycheck. Those foreign nations would come in and take everything they had. Ephesians chapter 5, here's how we work like Phinehas. Verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Verses 11 and 12 are not dealing with people, but with things. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The works of darkness have been listed up here. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting. These are the works of darkness. And because of these things, the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. When we see them... We're to rebuke them and reprove them. We're not to talk about them. But do you know what we do as Christians many times? We'll joke about sin. The Bible says that fools make a mock at sin. We shouldn't joke about drunkenness. An example I'll give you are the old Jackie Gleason shows. He was drunk all the time, but it was a big joke. And the studio audience would laugh at it. We should never joke about drunkenness. We shouldn't joke about fornication. We shouldn't joke about sodomy. We shouldn't joke about rebellion. We shouldn't joke about our president, but rather reprove the works of darkness. It is a shame even to speak of those things which are done to them in secret. And you know what? We talk too much about what the world's doing in detail when we shouldn't. We don't need to, and the Bible condemns it. All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. That's how we practice righteous indignation in the New Testament church. And I could give you, if you don't think Paul was as zealous as Phinehas, you haven't read the epistles of Paul. Paul was just as zealous as Phinehas. I read this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, I'm not there. I don't need to be there. I've already judged. I don't have to interview him. I don't have to meet with the deacons. I don't have to have a committee to help me make a decision. I've already judged. Take that man and put him out. And by the way, when you're gathered together with my spirit, because my spirit's going to be there, and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That is Phinehas of the New Testament. Amen. You say, but that's the only time that I know about. That's because you haven't read the epistles well enough. That church he tore to shreds. He told those Corinthians in the in the chapter before chapter five, he said, How do you want to see me next time? Do you want to see me in the spirit of meekness, or do you want to see me with a rod? Do you want to he's told them in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 13, how do you want to see me? Do you want to see me with the power that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me for edification, but that power used for destruction? Wow. I read over in 2nd and 1st Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 through 20, Hymenaeus and Philetus, two men who had preached false doctrine. Paul said, I have turned them over to Satan that they can learn not to blaspheme. That is the Phinehas of the New Testament. Things haven't changed. The rules are just a little different. Paul didn't shoot them. Paul didn't take a javelin and run it through the belly of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He turned them over to Satan. Now, brethren, righteous indignation, personal enemies are not your objects. Look at Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. We all have personal enemies. You might even think you have some in this assembly, some people in here who don't like you. You think don't like you. People at work that don't like you. Neighbors that don't like you. Those are your personal enemies. Jesus would say that the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies. But they were also neighbors. But I want to point out that personal enemies are not the proper object for righteous indignation. Just because someone offends you, or is angry at you, or you don't think they like you, you're to love them. Do you know what Jesus said? You have heard by them of old time that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the Pharisees' religion. That wasn't Moses. That was the corruption of Moses' law by the Pharisees. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 5. Ye have heard, not it is written, ye have heard by them of old time, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Do good to them which despitefully use you, Pray for them which persecute you. And by doing that, you can be the true children of your Father which is in heaven, Amen. because he sends his rain on the evil and the good, and his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Right. Therefore, be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Wow, that's a standard. Not only do we have to hate sin, we've got to love our enemies. We're talking about our personal enemies. Look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. The wise man said, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. This is not God's enemy, this is your enemy. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth. Now when an enemy of God falls... That's one thing. That's a different thing. But when your enemy falls, you are not supposed to be looking with happiness at something bad happening to your personal enemy who the only thing they've done... ...places. You should read Job and David. Job and David and Solomon... All warn about this. When Job is justifying himself and his justification was wrong, but what he said about himself was true, God never accused him of being a liar. But if you go read Job, Job said he never got excited or laughed or clapped his hands or slapped his thigh when bad things happened to his personal enemies. But when they were in need, he helped them. Think of your worst enemy in this city. If they had a flat tire beside the road, and you were the first one along, would you help them? Hey, I've got to answer that myself. Would you help them? You should. That's loving your enemy. Heaping coals of fire on his head. Romans chapter 12, and verse 17 says, Recompense to no man, evil for evil. Now is that some absolute statement or is that talking about personal offenses? It's not talking about evil in the sense of evil against God because then we couldn't have church judgment because we'd be recompensing evil against evil. These are personal offenses against your personal enemies. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. See how different it is? The Israelites were to kill all the Canaanites. They were to live peaceably with them too. They were just to put them underground. Then they could all live peaceably. The Israelites could all live peaceably. It's different in the New Testament. We can't, 1 Corinthians 5, we can't go out of the world. So we've got to get along with these sinners and adulterers and fornicators and ungodly people in the world. Dearly beloved, verse 19, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Here's wrath you should give place to and not let it land anywhere in you. Just let it go blow by. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. If his car is broken down beside the road of the flat tire, help him change it. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Righteous indignation in the New Testament had better be channeled within the bounds of the Word of God. Not just willy-nilly whenever you get upset because someone's mistreated you. These verses are plain. Look at Job 31. Job 31. I want you to see a righteous man. Remember, God bragged about Job. So what was Job's attitude toward his enemies? Job 31. Verse 29, he's speaking of his enemies. If I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him, neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. Notice his care. The reason it's conditioned with an if is Job is going through a whole string of ifs. If I've been wicked this way, or if I've been wicked this way, or if I've been wicked this way, then what I'm getting I deserve. But I didn't do these things. I treated my enemies with kindness. Someone will say, but what about David? Didn't David hate? Didn't David hate in the Bible? How, how do we reconcile loving our enemies and yet hating like David did? Look at Psalm 31 and verse 6. Psalm 31 and verse 6, I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. There he is describing some other denomination in its entirety of those that listen to and believe lying vanities. Same as Psalm 26 and verse 5, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked, but in neither case do we have David hating his personal enemies. David took care for his personal enemies. Look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. In those cases that we just looked at, David was saying he hated the congregation. He hated the group of people that believed lying vanities. The idol worshipers around him. In Psalm 139, we see in verse 21, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. And look at the context. It started in verse 19. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. These are God's enemies. These are not David's enemies. This is David addressing the enemies of God who take his name in vain, who are bloody men, who commit murder. He hates them. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred, I count them, mine enemies, but they were not his personal enemies because his personal enemies he loved and he showed kindness toward them just like he had taught Solomon as we read in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 17. So we've got to make it, we've got to draw here a distinction. When Jesus said love your enemies, he was dealing with personal enemies because the Pharisees were teaching if you've got an enemy, and as long as you're loving your neighbors, you can go ahead and hate your enemies. And the Pharisees weren't talking about Baal worshipers. The Pharisees were talking about someone at work that got a promotion above you and rubs it in. We don't read anything about Mordecai hating Haman, do we? A personal enemy. Now we know what they prayed. Do you know what they prayed? They prayed that the days that Haman was going to have to kill all the Jews in all of Persia were going to be overthrown by God and that they would be given an opportunity to see all their enemies die. But you don't read about Mordecai doing anything personally against Haman. And if you'll look right here, you'll see that David was hating the enemies of God, not his personal enemies. So that is how we make the distinction. That's how we make the difference. God is a God of vengeance, and if the object and the purpose are righteous, then we should joy at God's vengeance. You're in Psalms, look at Psalm 58 and see the spirit of righteous men. Psalm 58. Jesus Christ told the Pharisees of his day, How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? He called them serpents. He called them vipers. He called them whited sepulchers. He told them they were guilty of all the righteous blood ever shed on this earth. He told them he was going to tear their temple down, one stone by another, until that thing was level. He told them parables where they understood plainly what he meant, that he was talking about them. He would say, What will that man do? And they said, He will miserably destroy those sinners and burn up their city. And they knew he was talking about them because they were the enemies of God. But what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we're through Acts chapter 5. Do you know what we're going to run into in Acts chapter 7? We're going to run into Stephen being stoned to death. And what will Stephen say while he's being stoned to death? He focuses down on the one transaction that's taking place. They are hating me and they are throwing stones at me to take my life. And do you know what he said? Lay not this sin to their charge. He didn't say save their souls. He didn't say forgive them all their sins. He said lay not this sin to their charge. And that shows the spirit of a man under the powerful influence of the spirit of God that with stones thudding off his body, He can look and focus on that one transaction and forget, Lord, I'm not important enough for you to hold this transgression against them. That's loving your enemies. Do you know what the Bible says? I've already quoted it. Jesus said, Matthew 5, do good to them which despitefully use you. Is that doing good? When you say, lay not this sin to their charge. Psalm 58 and verse 10, this is righteous too. Verse 10, the righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. You haven't seen that verse on a plaque either. So that a man shall say, verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judgeth in the earth. Haven't we seen events and looked at those events and seen the glory of God in them. The Titanic, the unsinkable Titanic, we look at that event, and while we don't rejoice in the drowning death of any of those that drowned, we look at the disaster that befell that ship, and we give all the glory to God, because they said it was the unsinkable Titanic, and they uttered the words, even God couldn't sink this ship. And so we rejoice that there is a reward for the righteous, verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. We see things like that and we rejoice. That's righteous indignation, brethren. But we should have tender regard for our personal enemies because the Lord Jesus taught us that. Look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35. This is David now, the same man that just wrote Psalm 58. And you say, this is getting kind of tricky. It's not that tricky. Your personal enemies that are for small matters that just don't like you, love them. But the enemies of God, we should have a righteous indignation toward them and this earth. Let me tell you about the martyrs. What are the martyrs doing in heaven that are underneath the throne of God? Asking how long. They're not up there saying, Lord, save them all. They're not up there asking for mercy on them. They're not up there saying, Lord, lay not any sin to their charge. They're saying, how long until you take vengeance and revenge our blood? And they're looking at them as the enemies of God because it was a religious system that was called a beast in the Bible who had made war against the saints of the Most High God. It was not some personal offense like getting promoted over you at work and rubbing your nose in it. It's something entirely different. How long If that is that religious system? They're not talking so much about individual specific men, but about a great beast that lasted for 1,260 years that made war with the saints of God that was called the man of sin and the son of perdition, perdition which is judgment. The name of that thing is judgment. Psalm 35, verse 13. 12. Here's his enemies. Look at 11. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things I knew not. Here's his enemies, trying to get him in trouble. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. Verse 13. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. But in mine adversity, they rejoiced. That is being a man after God's own heart right there. But those were his personal enemies. Let me make it real simple. Two ways. One, do you have any personal enemies in this assembly? Love them. Do good to them. Favor them. When they're sick, let your clothing be sackcloth, figuratively or literally. Humble your soul with fasting and pray for them. Behave as if they'd been your best friend or brother. Bow down heavily as one mourns for his own mother. That is the spirit of a child of God under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you another example. If anyone comes back to this assembly and repents. Presently gone or seven years gone, we're going to love them. They're going to repent, but we're going to love them. And we're going to look forward to it, and I hope we pray for them. Let me tell you something. I pray for them. I do. That was one of the things I had to get straightened out. I pray for them. I'd love to see every single one of them back. Every single one. By the grace of God, fully restored and loving him with us like they once did. Right. Are you bowed down for them all? We've got a situation in our church right now that I hope all of you know that what I'm talking about. And I want to see that restoration take place. I want another one on the left hand to take place. And we're all going to be forgiving and loving when we see repentance because that's the work of God that restores that relationship. But in the meantime, we're going to pray for it because that's our New Testament obligation that the Lord will humble them. We don't take vengeance into our own hands. We don't go run a javelin through anyone. We pray for the Lord to help them meet with the king of terrors that he will humble their souls so that they'll come back willingly. But when they come back, we're going to have a party. We're going to have a feast. We're going to kill the fatted calf. And I don't care if it's current situations in our assembly or seven-year-old situations. I pray for them, and I hope that you'll pray for them, and I hope that our hearts are prepared that even if the ugliest of them came, and you know what I mean by that, the one that you consider your worst enemy, we'd love them and serve them again. That's being like the Lord Jesus Christ and having righteous indignation. We hate their sin. We rebuke them when they're in it. We don't go run a javelin through them. That's, we don't have the laws of the nation anymore. Paul never did it. Jesus didn't do it. Even when a woman was brought to him, they said taken in adultery. There's a whole lot of other situations around that event. He, he protected her and told her to go and sin no more and left her. There's a whole lot of other events. Don't, don't you go rely on John 8, 1 through 11 without understanding all that's there. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 9, said, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's love. Some of them were persecuting him. He wasn't praying for the non-elect Israel. Wouldn't that have been the most ridiculous statement in the whole Bible? Romans chapter 9, for Paul to preach that God has vessels of wrath prepared, to manifest the wrath and glory of God, and then to be praying that he might be accursed, that they could be saved, that would be saying, Lord, send me to hell to overthrow your eternal counsel. He was praying for elect Israel that was still rejecting the gospel, that they might be saved. Don't fret because of evil men, brethren. Righteous indignation. When we get indignant, when we see the the sin that's around us, don't fret because of the success of evildoers. Because the Bible wants to warn you, That their day is coming. I'm not going to turn you there. Their day is coming. Do you think the Lord hasn't seen? Do you think the Lord doesn't have holy indignation Himself against them? Just keep reading His Word and getting comfort from the fact that He will wreak vengeance. Don't ever judge hypocritically, brethren. Matthew chapter 7, when it says, Judge not that you be not judged. That isn't saying don't judge at all. If you go read the five verses there, it says don't judge hypocritically. How can you be judging someone else for the mote that's in their eye when you've got a telephone pole or a beam in your own? Don't judge hypocritically. We need to guard against excess zeal. Remember Joshua and the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites came and pretended they'd come from a great distance. They seduced Joshua into making a covenant with them. And when Saul knew that God had taken the kingdom away from him, 450 years later, when Saul knew that God had taken the kingdom away from him and given it to David, in foolish zeal, he went out and killed all the Gibeonites, thinking he was doing something great for the Lord. And God hated him for that. Because they had made a covenant, and God expects them to stand by their covenants. But that was unrighteous indignation. Remember not to have a spirit like Joab, David made a covenant with Abner, who was the captain of the host of King Saul's armies. David made a covenant with him and sent him home. There was going to be peace in Israel. The whole nation had left Saul and was going to make David their king. Joab was jealous, and Joab was David's nephew. Joab met Abner out there because Joab felt his job was being threatened, and he killed Abner, even though David had just made a covenant with him. And David heard about that, and David said, ye sons of Zeruiah are too hard for me. And in his heart he purposed what he was going to do to his own nephew, and on his deathbed his last words to Solomon were, kill, kill Joab. Solomon's first act of business was to kill David's nephew, Solomon's cousin, the man that had fought for David his entire life. Don't be like Jonah. And want to see God's judgment on people, let's rather see their salvation. Amen. Jonah preached for 40 days, almost six weeks, and then he goes out and sits on a hillside, can't wait for the fireworks to break forth on the city of Nineveh. That's not a righteous spirit. Let's pray for their salvation. All right. I mean, a people that God is dealing with. Amen. That was a people that God had sent a message to repent. And do you know what all those people did right down to the beasts? They repented. <coughs> Jonah should have been thanking God for such great mercy to see a pagan city entirely repent. James and John once saw the Samaritans mistreat Jesus Christ, and they said, Lord, can we call fire down from heaven and burn them up? He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's the spirit we don't want to have. We want to have righteous indignation. We want the spirit of Phinehas. We want to look in our own lives and hate sin. We want to look in the lives of others and hate sin. We want to make a compassion when it's someone that's weak and has fallen into something. We want to save them with fear and jerk them out of the fire when we see obstinance and rebellion in their sin. We want to pray for them, and we always want to execute church judgment properly toward them. And brethren, we always want to pray, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Amen. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Those words are at the end of Psalm 139, immediately following David saying, I hate them with a perfect hatred. But to check his heart, he said, search me, O God, and know me. Try my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's my prayer for this assembly. May we have the righteous indignation of a Phinehas of the New Testament As our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, who did good to his enemies, loved those that hated him, and I hope we can do the same. And The Lord will bring you situations where you have personal enemies to see if you'll love them. But for those that have turned their back on God, let's pray for them, and let's see God save them. When we have a chance, we should rebuke them, warn them, admonish them, but let's pray for God to humble them and bring them back and will love them once again. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to raise up some sons of Levi here. Amen. Please stand with me.